You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. And as a reminder, all the links for this show, the topics we discuss, as well as the links I've already mentioned, are available on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. Hey, listener, if you get anything out of these shows, I'd love a review or even just a rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. If you don't know, those podcast players often recommend new podcasts to people, and it's kind of how people discover stuff. And the way they discover it is through the rating system. And I don't have a lot of ratings right now. I think I only have, like, last check on iTunes, five or so ratings, which is crazy considering I get over 10,000 downloads a month. So if you could do me that solid, I would really appreciate it so we could get more viewers access to this content. Thank you so much. This episode was from September 2021, and I had friend and repeat guest Phil Estes on the show. Now, if you don't know about Phil, used to be a big deal at IBM, and now he's a big deal at AWS. He's a principal engineer with the Container Compute team, and a lot of his open source work revolves around the Docker runtime, security, and now Container D. So we get an update on the Container D project itself, other projects related to Container D, like Nerd Control and Lima. And then we wrap up the show talking about OpenSSF, which is a new industry consortium of companies all focusing on security stuff in cloud native. So they've got some neat tools. They've got some other deliverables for us in the community to take advantage of, and it's all in open source. And that's great. I think we could definitely use more friendly, easy to use, up-to-date security tools for us mere mortals. And along the way, we answered a ton of questions from people in chat. Again, if you've ever not seen the live show, it's on Thursdays, and you can show up at brett.live, and you can ask my guest questions, and that's how this show gets created. For the show today, I'm very excited to welcome back a friend of mine and Docker captain and so many other things, Phil Esty. Thanks for coming. Hey, great to be here, Brett, as usual. And this is the third time on this show. So Sounds right. Thanks again for being here. We always talk about Container D. We're definitely going to get into that. But we've got some other topics that I'm excited to get into today as well. So we've got what I feel like is a jam-packed hour of updates on some things and conversations. Uh, Phil, give us a quick update. You recently moved to AWS, and you're on the cloud, uh, the Container team? Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, basically a year ago, I was starting the interview process, thinking about other options in my career and had some friends at AWS. Long story short, I joined the container organization here in January. So I guess I'm another one of those COVID era, great resignation people. I think a lot of folks assumed after 20 some years at IBM, I'd just stick it out there for the rest of my career. But yeah, it was a, a lot of things came together to just give me some ideas to, to try something new. And the Container Org here has ownership of services that I think a lot of people who use AWS will recognize, ECS, Fargate, 
EKS, the registry ECR. So it's a fairly large organization. It also has some of the open source and Linux pieces in it. So it's, it's a it's an awesome organization for the things that I, that I care about. Container D heavily depended on by several of those services. So it's given me the freedom to keep working on Container D and bringing some of my open source work here to AWS. So it's been a great eight months so far. A lot of smart people here and yeah, a lot of uh, cool ideas around using Container D and continuing to push the envelope in managed container offerings. Honestly, that just, to me, that speaks to not so much to AWS themselves, but that speaks to the fact that containers are like the core, uh, containers one, they, they're just kind of everywhere in the ubiquity. I mean, and you, in a lot of places, you may not even know they're running, you're running in containers and stuff like that. I never really thought about the fact that now I'm going to have to bug you with every AWS container question, because yeah, I don't think a day goes by that I'm not either dealing with a student or a client or, or my own stuff on AWS in some sort of, or form of a container thing. Uh, it's yeah. just so pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. It's it definitely a huge shift kind of career wise, but but like I said, I, I think it's pushing me in new ways. There's ways at my age to get stuck in the mud, so to speak. And so it's forcing me to learn new things. And AWS, I think it's well known that they've got the service team model of two pizza teams. And whether or not that's always exactly how it operates, of course, is, is not necessarily a fact. But what it means is, is that there's a lot of like ownership and autonomy that I've never experienced at IBM, which again is just run in a very different way. And so it's interesting because people are are operationally minded, they're thinking about the business. So it, I guess in some ways it's, it, I could have chosen to work for a startup maybe and had a similar chance to explore all the aspects of, of operating a business, but in a sense, AWS does that at the service team level. So that's been good for me to, to get exposed to things that I just, I wasn't in my former roles. Yeah. Sounds exciting. They, for those that haven't seen you on the other two shows here, one of which is, I think the only, maybe one of two in all my years of having someone physically here. We did one where you were actually here on a little vacation trip, but to not know that maybe don't know about your involvement with Container D, give us a brief recap on that. Sure. 2014, the super cool OGs were using Docker in 2013 or <laughs> who knows when. 2014, I, I think if you worked for any cloud vendor or, or anyone related to that space, 2014 was the year that everybody said, oh, we got to figure out this Docker thing if they hadn't already or hadn't already been involved. And so at the time, from an IBM perspective, we were looking at how to understand the huge Docker explosion, containers, so I got involved in the Docker project, became a maintainer there, and then Container D and Run C and the OCI were all formed soon after. And Container D was spun out of Docker. I won't go into huge detail, but late 2016, the idea was let's make Container D a more full-fledged container runtime. Let's registry interactions so you could use it standalone. You could use it with Kubernetes. And by spring 2017, it had been donated to the CNCF. Um, so I, I, it made sense for me. That's what IBM wanted to use was kind of, and obviously since then, almost every cloud provider is choosing in a managed offering to kind of skip integrating at that Docker layer, which we know has a lot of great developer UX and 
obviously a lot of people have been talking about desktop and other components of that. But if you're running a managed service, Containerd is a great, more nimble choice where it's got a Go API. To have that kind of integration makes a little more sense than trying to run Docker uh, for your managed service. So since then, since 2017, 2018, there's been a huge growth in the consumption of Containerd used in a lot of interesting ways, used by a lot of clouds. And yeah, it's been an interesting run. Yeah, for those that haven't heard me say it a lot, on this show that you're just to repeat and echo what you said there container D is silently taking over the world of runtime management because Docker is being used less and less itself on servers. As we all start to update our Kubernetes clusters to newer releases that maybe prefer container D or the, if we're using a distribution that automatically uses container D and the, the Docker team has started to focus on developer tooling, which I, applaud and they're going back to their roots and not that they don't make a container engine but their container engine is now they're focusing it on a container engine for humans versus container d which is maybe a lower level that's meant to be used by other apis or other robots but we're here today to actually talking about how you can now use container d locally and the different ways you can do that so we're gonna get in that to a second and by the way you're gonna be at kubecon so you're doing a container yep. d talk yeah, there'll be several maintainers from Containerd doing our usual intro slash deep dive topics. So yeah, I hope to be there. Yeah, that, yeah. For the, those that are able to make it in person or are going to watch it virtually, I think you guys every KubeCon have, or at least once a year, right? You have a Containerd update kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, and for those of you that are not fluent in all of the layers of tooling, you probably are using Containerd today in some fashion, and you didn't even know it. Like Docker Desktop and anything that Docker has is using Containerd underneath it. Uh, if you're using Kubernetes, either Kubernetes is using Docker, which uses Containerd, or it's using Containerd directly. It might be using Cryo, but that's usually just OpenShift. So yeah, a lot of us, it's amazing how you can just be a hobbyist and sort of interested in a project, maybe, and you were lucky enough to do it professionally, and then suddenly you realize that you're, I don't know, half a million devices are running your code. Like not half a million, half a billion or a billion <laughs> devices are running your code. Like if you think about every place that's ever had Docker or Kubernetes installed is essentially running lines of your code. That's yeah, that's uh, scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a sense, it's crazy because I feel like I went through 20 years of programming where I couldn't claim anything even close to that. And then to get involved in Docker and now Containerd, it's pretty wild to think of the usage explosion of those software stacks compared to anything I ever worked on for 20 years. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we thank you for your code. But uh, Marcos comes in with, in your, Phil, in your opinion, what's the area that containers still have some good opportunity to grow? Yeah. So I may cheat a little bit and say separate from container runtimes, I think the image format, or I may even step back from image format and just say sort of the, the idea of artifacts and a registry. I feel like that aspect is getting a lot of, of interest and focus these days. If you join the OCI calls, there's a lot of people trying to figure out representing everything from SBOMs to home charts to OPA. I just lost what you call OPA, the rules um, for gatekeeper. Ooh, that's so a good question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's all these things that 
I think we this idea of push and pull and, and storage and tagging and immutability. I think there's a ton of room to grow there because it. A lot of people are finding it's really easy to shove things in a registry, but I, I think right now we're kind of at the very early edge of that, where it's really easy to. There are registries with the flexibility to let you hack around and push all kinds of different objects that don't look like container image configs and layers and blobs. But I think what necessarily will have to happen is that there'll have to be some kind of structure around that to know what it is and how registries handle the life cycle of it. Signing and signatures is another aspect of that. So I think that's an area where we'll see a lot of advancement in the next few years. Container runtimes, I think we're already seeing it. As far as breadth of like application, we see it all over the place. I mean, everything from IoT to to high-performance computing, to everything else. So, yeah, I'm not always great with crystal ball things, but I definitely think the image, we've gotten so used to the this nice idea of an image reference and a tag and push and pull that I think we'll see that model. I mean, already Homebrew is using GitHub's container registry for their blob delivery if you, you know, brew install a package. So Really? That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I've recently uh, started to love GitHub Container Registry. I've been spending a lot of time with it and having all that stuff. I'm very bullish on on GitHub. So <laughs> uh, Code Spaces, yeah, you name it. GitHub Actions um, and all those things. So yeah, bringing the container images to the code and that really speaks to my, you know, I wish Docker would have done it first. <laughs> but yeah. to have GitHub doing it, which is that's the, just the evolution of the industry, but to have images just as a natural extension, as an as a default artifact store for everything you're doing in code or related to code is just, I love it. I love every part of it. And those like you and I, we, we're both a little gray hair and we've been around a while and we know that it could be way, like it was way worse back then. It was just stuff everywhere and decentralized and just confusing and so much complexity and yeah the the secure supply supply secure supply chain stuff to me is really interesting because i very quickly fall off that cliff of this is too complicated no one's going to use it and i just just walk away and traditionally security tooling has had a high barrier to entry and so anytime you talk to me about built-in features like when container d dropped the the feature for encrypting image image stores you know ca- image caches or whatever i haven't used it but i was excited that it was a built-in feature it would also be exciting if it was just on by default i don't know why but i'm always excited when security advancements become defaults like the whole https by default movement i was just a huge fan of because making security optional means 90 percent people aren't going to do it so whenever we hear about Things like secure supply chain and registries or in container runtimes, only running images that meet these requirements. That's, I heart that. We got more questions for you. What, when container D will run natively on Mac OS 10? Well, now 11, Mac OS 11. Yeah, there are, are multiple answers to that. The code actually compiles on Mac OS. In fact, it does, we have a GitHub Actions check for that every PR to make sure we don't break that because there has been, you know, some use of the client on, on Mac OS, just like Docker desktop, the Docker command is compiled and running. But I assume when people ask that, they're wondering, okay, that's great, but what does it mean? Uh, I can't run containers there because there's not a Linux kernel or some set of isolating, you know, capabilities in the Mac OS kernel. If you look at 
the ContainerD repo, I don't, I'm not good at memorizing PR numbers on the top of my head, but if you just search on Mac OS or maybe under BSD, we've recently, there've been a couple initiatives. One is free BSD support. And secondly, there is a set of PRs. Uh, in fact, that very top one, so there's the Darwin Snapshotter. So if you know um, Linux architecture and OS tuples, Darwin is the OS name for Mac OS because of the kernel name. Um, so that's, that's a snapshotter. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how to do mounts properly because the overlay feature that most of you rely on, whether or not, isn't available in the Darwin kernel. So anyway, you can search through those PRs. There's a lot of interesting uh, work being done to actually have rudimentary container-like support natively on Mac OS. So it's coming. There are people who are interested in it and pushing it forward. So I think you'll actually see that. That's neat. Are we talking about putting a Mac executable binary in a container image and being able to run it directly on Mac? That definitely could be one use case. Yeah, I'm now wishing I had done my, my <laughs> pre-Brett show reading to remember on Linux, you have run C and run C is what's actually starting your process. In this case, the submitter of that PR also has a tool, I believe it's called run U or uh, something like that, which is the isolator that he's put together. And I thought it had some kind of Linux compatibility. Someone, someone in the chat probably has the freedom to go <laughs> confirm that, that or, or correct me be, between now and the end of the show. But yeah. yeah. Happens too. Because yeah, we've, I mean, it's been a question for, since the invention of Docker, like, hey, can I run Mac apps on this? And when you get into the layers of abstraction and the little tiny VMs, these things are all running now. It's like, what, what really is on my Mac? And so for those that are watching that are maybe not really up on all the layers of all this technology, I've not seen a OCI compliant image and runtime run a Mac built binary directly on a Mac kernel. Doesn't mean we can't do it. I don't pretend to understand all the complexities and nuances, but it's just not been a thing that Docker themselves has ever tried to solve, and I'm aware of. And off the top of my head, I can't remember anyone attempting to try to do that in open source anyway. But we have Windows binaries, you know, <laughs> no reason why that architecturally, I guess, or uh, something like that, but it would be work. Right? It'd be lots of work, and you got to ask yourself, is that necessary? And but that's a great question. At all, parts of the stack, this question comes up. People that are interested in the lower levels, kernel API calls, stuff like that. And then there's just casual users that are like, why do I need Docker Desktop to run Docker? Can I just, what do I, when I do a brew install Docker, why don't I get the engine and why doesn't it work? Because by default, that's only gonna install the client, the command line, which expects you to have a Linux engine running somewhere else. Maybe you and I could, if there's any advancement in that in the future, we'll have to have a special show. We're just like, we break yeah. the news for everyone. But it's not without the realm of possibility. I wouldn't even have thought that GUIs and containers was sort of a ugly hack on the side that only Jesse and other badass hackers can do. But I, we just had uh, Nuno, uh, Captain Corsair, uh, on the show like a month ago talking about Windows 11 and WSL2 and using GUIs from inside, Linux GUIs from inside containers. And it worked. He ran a browser. Yeah. I think he even had video and sound. Like it, every time I think that's not possible, it's not going to happen. And it's, it ends up happening. So let's see what we got for next question. 
BSOM has been trending topic recently. Just wondering where the focus is at the moment. I think you probably mean SBOM. Either that or you're talking about something I know nothing about. But uh, software bill of material, I think, is probably what you're asking about. It's not directly in my line of sight, but one of the things I mentioned to Brett as we were preparing was that I'm part of the advisory council for the OpenSSF, which was founded last year. So Open Source Security Foundation, which has a set of working groups focused on various aspects of open source security, things you probably already knew were going on from a Linux Foundation perspective, are many of them are going to be consolidated underneath the OpenSSF, which is still basically in bootstrapping mode, but about to become more of its formal budget and governance will all be hammered out in the next few months. Anyway, one aspect, of course, of open source security is supply chain security and software bill of materials and some of the formats around that and how to store it and how to associate that in the container world with container images. There are people heavily involved in those discussions. In fact, even the OCI, it comes up. There are people who are involved in that from VMware who are working on some of the standards and specifications around that. Again, for people that haven't heard that term, it's the manufacturing space of bill of materials is a very understood concept in that you can create an exact list of everything that went into my car or my microwave. And in software bill of materials, you think of this container image has some application, but it also has 30 libraries from some distro that I, when I created it, were pulled in, has these other binaries and tools. And so you can think of an SBOM being a document that helps you know exactly what versions of those things went into your container image. So those that are working on improved image scanning and, and tracking of CVEs, this is another aspect of helping um, solve some of those challenges in supply chain security. So again, there are people smarter than me working on SBOM technology, but I think you'll hear more about it. I don't know how many people follow that space, but the White House put out an executive order a few months ago that has a section that are just initiatives that definitely will directly affect anyone who provides software to the U.S. government will need to think through you know, some of these topics of how to provide an SBOM and how to handle supply chain security in your pipelines and how you source the binaries that end up in something that you deliver to a government agency. And people have obviously dealt in that space before. Anyone who's done FIPS 140 or some of the other government standards, right. security, DISA. Um, but Sorry. again, I think we'll be hearing more about this because it Obviously, security matters more than just for the U.S. government. Look at any of the big news stories of the last several months on, on security issues, and this will be becoming more and more important for any business. And SBOMs, I think, will be part of that. Very cool. I'm glad you gave that little uh, that summary on it, too, because a lot of us are just getting into that space, my, myself included. This last year, I've been on a project that's related to SOX 2 or whatever, and, and FIPS 140, and... Um, like I'm dealing with Contour and Envoy do, using FIPS compliant, uh, the the boring SSL com from oh, Google. Yeah, yeah. Yep. getting into that space and having to deal with a lot of those requirements. Not always fun, but worthwhile <laughs> in some cases. Like I always learn something. Uh, so an, hopefully a yes, no question. ECS, does it use Container D? So yeah, ECS 
today is still built around Docker. There, there are plenty of discussions uh, about, you know, now the other managed offerings from AWS rely only on ContainerD. Can we do that for ECS? Yeah, that, I think that'll be an ongoing discussion. But because in ECS, you're managing your EC2 instances, and there's an expectation by many of those users that the Docker client is there. They're you know yeah. running other software. It's a little bit trickier, again, thinking about how Fargate and ECS differ in that where my responsibility ends and AWS's starts. So in Fargate, because we take responsibility for the AMI that's running and all the other components there, it was easy for us to say, well, we're going to use ContainerD to run your task. ECS, you may be very much hands-on yeah. and expecting some of the Docker workflows to operate as they do today. So it's a little harder to make that case that, oh, actually, Docker isn't there. Figure, <laughs> figure out how, figure how out, to figure do what out. you're doing on ContainerD. Yeah, and you're right. Full disclosure, right? If you're running Docker, then it's running a container D for you. So technically, yeah, yes, yeah, the yeah. answer is always yes. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, that's a great point you're making because I just realized I have a customer that they're running Jenkins in ECS, their their worker nodes, and it expects the Docker daemon to be there. And if it just suddenly switched to something else, they would need some sort of either it, you know, all all the upstream tooling or downstream tooling rather is going to have to change to be flexible for either use the, the container D directly or use the Docker API itself. Yeah. And when Docker still works, I recently found out actually related to the Docker stuff that they're no longer supporting like uh, Red Hat and paid versions. So this actually means that Docker Inc, this is a tangent, but Docker Inc doesn't support directly the engine runtime on Windows Server. That's actually Mirantis now. And they don't oh. support Red Hat, even though you can't install it, they used to offer like a paid version. I think if you remember way back in the day, Solomon would yeah, say paid yeah. versions of Docker for paid versions of OSs, but they don't have a Red Hat version either anymore, or even, and evidently, I guess they don't get a lot of requests. So they just didn't bother with it once they did the split. So I didn't know that. And I've had an interesting internal dilemma around is Do Docker loves the engine. They've always, that's, that was our first invention. And, but yet it's not, running everywhere anymore. It's actually like Docker themselves are running it on fewer places than they were three years ago. And I don't know how to feel about that because <laughs> it's tech because they're getting out of the server game. They're, they're wanting to be developer yeah. tooling and all this stuff. But at what point did they say, well, you know, the Docker engine on Linux servers, um, you know, we're, only, we're maybe not going to support as many variants or we're not going to bother because I don't think they've ever done BSD, for example, and that yeah. may never happen now. It's just an interesting world where we're all maybe not going to always use Docker everywhere and we're going to have to learn other tooling, which is cool. Like we can talk about nerd control today and ContainerD has its own little command line yep. light yep. tool that's pretty, pretty cool. That I actually was going to do a talk at Docker, at uh, KubeCon rather, on shifting from Docker CLI to ContainerD CLI. Yeah. yeah. And it just, we just kept canceling the workshop because when they weren't doing real world ones, we didn't want to do a virtual workshop because it had to be recorded. We're like, well, I don't know how to, how good can a recorded workshop be <laughs> when you can't yeah. answer, ask questions and, and interact with people and help them with their problems. So long story longer there. Yes, but no, that was the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and I, to your, to your point, what's interesting about your statement that Jenkins needs this or this tool needs that. 
expectation of the Docker socket because Containerd has become fairly standard in a lot of managed service offerings. We've seen a lot of vendors figure out a path forward that doesn't rely on Docker socket or any expectation that it is the Docker engine. And so I think as that continues, there'll be an easier path someday for ECS to say, oh, by the way, here's the Containerd on me instead of Docker. Um, so we'll see. But I, I think just everything you said in those last few minutes, people are recognizing that the expectation that the Docker socket is the only way I can do container runtimey things. Every vendor is having to figure out how do I support Creo and Containerd and Docker. And I think we'll see a world in which it's easier to switch runtimes and still have all your tools and your expectations yeah. work. Yeah, for sure. And Docker themselves is doing that because their latest work this last year and a half on Docker Compose, adding that, making that a Go binary, adding it as a plug in the Docker command line. It now deploys because people get a, give me a lot of questions around the future of Swarm. Can you know uh, Docker, you know Docker servers remotely? How do I deploy? How do I Docker machine is deprecated? So how do I create machines that are easily enabling the Docker remote and all this stuff? And my message has started to be that Docker is getting out of that game of remote sockets directly, and that's not the model anymore. That they're adding these ECS and Azure ACI and hopefully more plugins to talk to the cloud APIs, and the cloud API sits in the middle between your local Docker and whatever thing eventually runs your container. Instead of Docker having to talk to Docker, Docker is just talking to other APIs in the cloud uh, or on servers. And I love that because I find that it's way more flexible. It's It seems much, a much more open model and flexible model for scaling to all the things, especially when you have now less than 100 employees in the company. <laughs> so can't do it all, can't build it for everything. So use everyone else's tools. Another good question, a little bit, could, we could spin on this one forever. Is there any disruptive work being done in the CRI or OCI space? Uh, have you seen anything lately that you might share from some of the meetings and whatnot? Yeah, I'm trying to decide what disruptive <laughs> any, Anything but... significant that's different than, yeah, because a lot of us, we once the standards were created and like the Docker file was standard and then the image format was standard, we're like, ah, eh, okay. And then we all moved on. We haven't really yeah, kept yeah. up. If I hear about other types of artifacts, the registry yeah. standard now, stuff like that. Yeah, so two things that may be interesting. One one is of interest to me, although I've been bad about not getting as involved as I probably could or should be. So I did the initial user namespaces work in the Docker engine. Container D sports user namespaces in a similar way. And then Akihiro and some Red Hat folks have pushed made huge strides in rootless, rootless Docker, rootless RunC, rootless Containerd, rootless Creo. What hasn't happened is connecting the dots from all of that work to Kubernetes in a formal way that through the CRI, you could say, this pod, I want rootless or using this user namespace range. So it's it has effective root, but it's not really root. All, all the same user namespaces concepts. That cap, which is a Kubernetes enhancement proposal, has kind of sat through a lot of versions of Kubernetes. And that's what I mean. I, I feel like it's something I may, may be able to help with given my background, and I just haven't been able to find the time. But there are some people starting to move it forward. One of the big kind of kernel features that I would say has kept user namespaces kind of in, in this weird spot for years is the idea that my file system mappings 
don't naturally follow my user ID mappings, and so therefore I have to play games with Chon and, and Chmod to yeah. you know figure out how to make these things line up. Well, Christian Browder from Canonical finally got ID mapped mounts into the kernel, so it's a merge feature in the Linux kernel, and so now we have a PR in Container D. I assume Creo may have something similar that will allow you to use these ID map mounts to get this natural alignment between, hey, my container runs in this weird ID namespace of 100,000 to 164K. And now my container image will have that same ID mapping and I don't have to do a bunch of weird things to get the file system in the right state. So I, I hope features like that will finally push us over the hill of getting Kubernetes support for user namespaces. And so that involves the CRI, that involves the runtimes, involves kernel dependencies. And so just like anything else with kind of this tentacles reaching everywhere, it takes a while to get all those pieces like to the right place. But I think that's an interesting CRI a bit of work that's taken some people several years to get it moving. Then in the OCI, like you said, Brett, like there's a set, there's a, sense in which, okay, we standardize these things, we can all relax now and sit back, celebrate. And there hasn't been a ton done to push things to, to the next, what's the next hurdle or what's the next kind of breakthrough. We're actually hoping to have an OCI summit. Well, we are having an OCI summit. It's going to be hybrid for sure. We Months ago, we're really hoping for our first kind of big in-person OCI get-together mm. next week in Seattle. It's going to be hybrid, but one of the topics is someone wrote uh, kind of a set of proposals that were loosely termed OCI v2. Not that it was really a new spec or anything. It was mostly a collection of ideas of we've depended on this way of doing things. We have these layers that are tar gz and, and they have this config object. What are the next kind of big ideas in better ways to store file system contents? And so it's actually on our agenda next week to try and get some people who care about those distinct topics to see, can we get some working groups going that actually take these to the next step? I would definitely call some of those, those are, some of those are very disruptive ideas. Yeah. Thinking about what's it's been really great to get to where we are, but what are some things that, that are keeping us from taking containers to to a new set of capabilities? Yeah, and semi-related to that, for those of you that run a Docker build command, a large portion of my consulting work is just related around Docker files, Docker builds, and I've learned to love BuildKit, and I know that it's not the only way to build tools out there, but it is, I think some of the other tools even use BuildKit under, under, under themselves. And one of the things I'm starting to see is we've all, we don't really think about versions of Docker files, right? Now, obviously the Docker file and then the image it produces are, I think they're technically two different standards, right? I'm not sure the image standard includes the Docker file standard. I don't no, actually, no. yeah. But, you know, like recently, I think Docker announced the here doc standard and as an experimental option and build kit for in, improving the the Docker file use, uh, especially now that we're all getting pretty complex Docker files when it comes to multi-stage and instead of dumping everything in a gigantic run command with a bunch of backslashes and double ampersands and all the, all this stuff, I feel like we've, okay, we've had this idea for seven years and you're starting to see little f factions create other ideas about how to do this. I think recently I just saw, a, I think they both have a cloud service as well as an open source component, but they're, 
basically reimagining what the Docker file could be and a different way to build the, the same compliant image, but from a totally different build type object or whatever. And what I'd hate to see is a fracture of the ecosystem, right? Where we're all are now sure. like, well, I'm building on this unique tool and that's the only tool that can build it, but we do need to evolve. And also it's the same thing with the image, right? There are things that I want to do in images that just don't really work today the way that they are. And the idea of sometimes moving volumes around with the image format is seems hacky to me, but I do it. And I actually have a couple little simple tools to help people with that. So it would be, uh, I think there's so much room for growth and it's just exciting to think about what five years from now, how much more the image standard is the standard artifact for everything. I, I love the fact that Brew is using it and I'd love to see other packaging tools use that as the standard. I'm imagining a day where whether you're using NPM or Composer or uh, bundle or whatever you're using that in the background, the artifacts are really just OCI compliant images. And that's like a dream state for me because someone who deals with that supply chain of all these various tools and they're all have their own, in a, you know, their own little quirks and limitations to get yep. us to settle on something would be awesome. So we have a ton of questions. Why don't you bring us up to speed? We talked a little bit on the Docker announcement for Docker going paid. Uh, there was a question in here asking about um, the future of Docker, you know, are they dead because they're going paid? I know, I think that's actually, it's they're on the path to survivability. I think that honestly, the Docker desktop thing, wow. even though a lot of us didn't necessarily like having to pay for software that we've been using for free, um, that's probably the best approach for them long-term if they can get enough people to pay for it. Because I don't know that they had another path to profitability and we all want a Docker that lists, that exists, but we don't want it to not exist. So uh, that's my short answer to that. But for you, Phil, we talked about the idea of Lima, nerd control, seeing some of the contributions that other, I'm going to, I always mess up his name. Akihiro, yeah. Akihiro, thank you. Akihiro, who's just a mainstay in the low-level container community, a ton of PRs and open source work there. Thank you. Thank you all for all you that are volunteering on the ContainerD project. But you've now got other stuff. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? We've got like Lima, we've got nerd control. All these si all yeah. these things that are scoped inside of the container D organization. Yeah, so we I'll first say from a governance perspective, since you you brought that up, we have we ended up creating a concept of core subprojects and non-core subprojects. The difference being that container D, the engine, and all its uh, snapshotters uh, and subprojects that are incorporated directly into the container runtime. Those are all core projects in the sense that our support statements, our stability statements all apply across those projects. But obviously there's a lot of interesting work that people are doing that from time to time, it just makes sense that they associate with ContainerD. And so the star GZ snapshotter was one of our first ones, although we actually had a Rust implemented TTRPC, which is a, a lightweight GRPC implementation that is used by the ContainerD shims to talk back to the engine. So the Rust implementation, which again, a, I believe is a cloud provider in China, obviously has backend services in Rust and they wanted to talk to over TTRPC in Rust. Anyway, so th there's these other components that maybe the, the core ContainerD community didn't write or develop, but we think they're valuable to be in the sphere of ContainerD. And so we call those non-core some projects they're still maintained. All the container D maintainers have to agree and approve based on the governance to include those. 
So Nerd CTL and Lima, or, or Nerd CTL specifically, I think Lima is still something Akihiro created and is uh, standalone. Actually, it's really, if you think about it, it's the piece, it's some of those pieces of Docker desktop that people don't talk about as much, but I think on your show a few weeks ago uh, and the list you made on Twitter, all, all these how the VM gets created, what's inside of it, how it talks back to the host. Lima handles all that aspect so that you can have NerdCTL on Mac OS and have that same feeling of I'm able to interact with my container runtime. I don't even have to think about the fact that it's inside a VM. Uh, NerdCTL specifically, like you are showing here, is just basically a client for Container D that gives you the same UI UX as Docker. So all the Docker pull, push, run, PS, uh, and various query commands. The cool thing is because Akihiro built it around Container D, some of the other features that have associated themselves with Container D you get for free. And so his rootless mode support the encrypted Container layer work that has a Containerd plugin. I think he also mentioned the StarGZ snapshotter. So the cool thing is these are can all be built in to NerdCTL. And so instead of a complicated, how do I get this piece working with Containerd, you get it prepackaged with NerdCTL. So you get the Docker-like syntax, and you also get some Containerd features that are cutting edge. So yeah, I I take. No credit for it. Akihiro, like you said, has done some amazing work over the years. And we were starting to get a lot of people saying, well, the CTR tool, which is our little kind of admin debug client, you know, just I can't move. I, I'd like to use Containerd more as my container runtime, but I need more Docker-like features. And so NerdCTL was really the answer. Yeah, uh, like that. building. Yeah. 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 It's exactly. Like that it includes build kit because that's yeah. when yeah. you look at other things like Podman and Cryo and other ideas of tooling, and maybe those are bad examples, but they usually building is separate. But so much of what we've all been used to is that it, image management, running containers, managing containers, and then building those images. Like we all just assume that it's from the Docker days, we're spoiled by it being on one command line, one tool. So for a lot of us that are doing it all day long, I mean, not everyone's going to be into one single tool that does it all, but it's kind of neat that this is technically a bunch of separate tools, but are just wrapped up in a, a main tool. And technically, I guess that's really what Docker is doing in the background anyway, because it's build kit under in inside of Docker. But yeah, I, I love this project. I saw it before the Docker desktop changing licensing and all. I saw uh, him promoting this on Twitter, I think, and I, I instantly thought it was fantastic. And I haven't really used it because Docker Desktop is my go-to, <laughs> my jam. But I have set up Lima. Lima is uh, Mac specific, but that manages the VM and auto helps it helps me get uh, nerd control and everything else there. And I have played around with it, and, and it does as advertised. It works, and I can only I can see that the the functionality and the edge cases that maybe Docker Desktop are still better at can slowly be solved over time. For those of you that missed that episode, if you just go back on this show in, in YouTube, if you go back in my videos, I don't know, it was maybe a month or three weeks when they announced it. We did a whole show on like, if you're on WSL2 on Windows, if you want to try to avoid Docker Desktop, or if you, not so much that you want to avoid it, but if you're, you can't pay for it or your company won't pay for it and you're forced to not use it, how to get Docker just to run directly in WSL2. If you're on, Ma if you're on Linux, you just, 
run Docker, nothing's changed because Docker's licensing doesn't change in the engine or the command line. It's just for Docker Desktop. And then here on Mac, this is the Lima specifically, at least is a Mac focused thing to get you that Linux machine on Mac until the wonderful utopia of us just running everything directly on Mac. So we are running out of time, but another topic that I wanted to get into is the open SSF stuff. And can you give us a high level real quick of what, and then, and then we'll do some last minute questions, like a high level yeah. of what that's about? Yeah, like I said, it's a foundation underneath the Linux foundation, so similar to OCI or CNCF. It is was just put together last year, founding members, Google, GitHub, Microsoft, IBM, and maybe one or two others that, I, that I'm forgetting. With this idea that, that open source security and the secure supply chain and the topics around secure development, hygiene, et cetera, are all just critical in today's world. And therefore we need a place where people can collaborate together. So those six bullets are kind of the main working groups that exist today. So if you're interested in tooling or best practice or how critical projects like OpenSSL get security funding, these are all active working groups that have leadership and regular participation across the industry. And out of it are, again, it's fairly new, but out of it are coming interesting projects, the Scorecards Project, All Star, the blog has some interesting updates on what things are happening within the OpenSSF. I, th I think this is a great place for people to get involved who care about open source security. It's fairly young, and I think that there'll be plenty of ways for people to get further involved. And yeah, it's been interesting. I got involved because IBM asked me to be a representative, even after joining AWS. AWS said, yeah, definitely continue your involvement there. It's a set of initiatives that that every enterprise and company is, go is going to care about. Uh, whether or not they formally join or participate in OpenSSF is, is obviously a, a decision for each company to make. But yeah, it, it's again, I think it'll be a place where hopefully a lot of good collaborative work will happen around these topics like SBOMs and secure supply chain. And OpenSSF has definitely got more interest in and people wondering how to get involved because of the White House executive order from a few months ago, because companies realize they'll have to have answers for this. And yeah, you can get a cool- uh, And they have swag. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this, especially the fact that uh, a part of it isn't just policy, and but that it's also gonna result in some tooling because I think for a lot of us on the, front lines, the, the tooling is how we implement those standards. And when current tooling is either paid only, or it's adhering to whatever that vendor standard is, and not necessarily a common yeah. set of practices. The conversation recently in one, in our, one of our talks, actually one of our little ch chats in the Discord and community was around security scanners that are incorporating availability rules. So like complaining, complaining as a security concern because you don't have CPU limits or memory limits. And my, my argument was like, well, I don't really cons I consider that an availability thing, but I don't really consider that a security thing. 
And I don't like it when security tools start to tell me about other things that aren't directly security related because I like to keep my security stuff very focused and very important. And I don't want it to get muddled with a bunch of other random stuff. And we went down a, a great discussion of the pros and cons of that and maybe how it's actually better anyway that it's there. And, and I just see it like agencies like or organizations like this that are a group of people from all sorts of backgrounds and different companies coming together and actually iterating on ideas about how we maybe are going to implement this stuff. Like that All-Star, All-Stars tool, for those of you who didn't see it, the All-Stars tool is something that was just a topic like a couple of months ago with a client of mine that has dozens and dozens of repos in GitHub. And how do they standardize on making sure that each repo has a common set of patterns and practices and settings that are not just security related, but largely security related to make sure that everyone's doing the right things. And they needed they need more bots and automation to basically figure all that out. And all Stars is now going to solve part of that problem. And yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So yeah, so I put the link in chat for everyone. Go check out OpenSSF. That's a pretty new thing. And I'm excited to see some of the stuff that comes out of that that working group. All right. I don't know if you have, do you have a few minutes left to rapid fire questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Why is ContainerD not enforcing rootless by default? That's a good question. One of the things is that we don't see ourselves as ourselves being ContainerD as the arbiters of the sort of default configuration. So again, if you're using Kubernetes, like your whoever's providing you that Kubernetes platform is the one who configures uh, ContainerD. So again, we see ourselves usually wrapped in some other tool or some other delivery. So if you think about NerdCTL, NerdCTL is actually providing rootless out of the box for ContainerD. And so it's doing that setup. The other aspect I think that that makes sense to to think about there is that rootless requires, you know, a set user space networking capabilities with Slurp for NetNS and some other packages that it depends on a fuse based, you know, user space snapshotter. So ContainerD making that decision for you and then enforcing potential performance penalties. That's not really something I think ContainerD, ContainerD the project wants to make. That's more a runtime configuration install. Yeah, it's like an install install decision, not a a runtime decision. I could probably draw an analogy somehow between that and like choosing to install your NPM dependencies global or in the current directory. It's a it's an install time decision based on what how you want to scope your binaries and stuff. So yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I like that answer. Next question: Is there any plan to integrate Container D with SigStore, which I'm not aware of, to verify and validate images before running them. I think SigStore verifies the image signature at K8's administration control, not at a container runtime. Admission control, sorry. An admission control, not a, a runtime decision. Yeah. So yeah, SigStore and Cosign, these are newer tools in the container signing space. So we've had Red Hat's had a signature signing model. Uh, we've got Notary from, from Docker and now a CNCF project. We've done no integration at the ContainerD runtime level with signing capabilities. People that want that capability tend to be implementing it in a Kubernetes admission control. So IBM has an open source one that some people use. I'm, I'm sure OPA and some of those the tools in that sphere let you say, I only use images from this registry and they have to have signatures or they have to be signed by this entity. So again, all that to say that we have not, I mean, ContainerD is pluggable. So if someone wants to write a validation of signatures 
post-poll that's possible. And we've had some very high-level discussions about it, but again, image signing is a kind of fast-moving space with Cosign and SyncStore getting a lot of airplay right now. Notary's been around for years. Red Hat had the GPG-based signing for several mm-hmm. years now in OpenShift. So it's not something we, I think those communities, if they want run, runtime-based signature validation, like that could be a contribution to ContainerD, but it's not really something we're implementing because there's not a single signing solution today. Yeah. Man, I, honestly, I can't wait for that stuff. Because one of the things that always got me excited about Docker itself and then Swarm when it came out was there were so many security decisions made by default in a good way. Yeah. And yeah. Yep. using reduced kernel privileges and app armor and all these things by default. And then Swarm with its in default to uh, multi-factor authentication and secure out of the box uh, for all the res- uh, authentication, at least. And uh, secure tunnels for the control traffic. I'm just such a smooth implementation, it was highly opinionated and very uh, narrowly scoped. So when you get into Kubernetes world, like just in the latest release, there's all this talk now finally about um, using using the additional security profiles of Linux inside of Kubernetes, which I'm very excited about. But I'm looking so much forward to the day where user namespaces, rootless mode, no sudo privileges by default, just like you go on the list, signed by default, sort of checkbox signing through all your tools so that when you're installing your nodes, they know that this is the only place they can run images from. And then the image registry already knows how to deal with signing. And just that whole pipeline, it's a ton of tooling. It's a ton of decisions that have to be made. I get it. But I'm just very much looking forward to the day where running a distributed architecture with images from multiple locations is got the same checks and balances that we had with a simple local Docker run. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because it, obviously the, the scale of all that really magnifies the problem. And the, but I'm excited to see the, the space in that. And we're going to have a, yet another talk. Maybe Perfect. I should get with you after this to find some of the people, in, players in that industry and get them on the show to talk about some of that more security focused stuff. All right. I said rapid fire and I'm not obeying my own <laughs> rules. So uh, is Nexus Artifactory or GitLab good for container registry or S3 bucket? I will just say, I have not seen anyone use an S3 bucket in a business that makes money on containers. They all use a cloud registry. If they're not using Docker Hub, they're using either a cloud registry or they're running their own, like Harbor. I don't know what OpenShift uses. I just know Harbor a lot. And Artifactory, GitLab, Nexus, all great registries. I'm taking this one on my own instead of asking Phil, yeah. but... If, if there is a way to use an S3 bucket, I'm pretty sure it's not as easy as all those things. Yeah, right. I mean, it's almost some of those tools may end up using an S3 bucket for storage right. of layers or metadata, but that's a, it's combining two different topics because there something has to front. And actually, I think you brought up Marco's comment mm-hmm. earlier. I mean, Jerome showed off a fun hack where you could actually front, you know, a pull from S3. And yeah. It, as with anything else, it's how much do you want to assemble something yourself versus using a tool that some, someone's validated, it's registry, distribution, API compliant, et cetera. Like you said, there's plenty to choose from. There's Harbor, there's cloud registries, there's Artifactory, et cetera. Is Kraken, is Kraken one? That's the distributed registry that does... That sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, anyway. There's lots of options, and I recommend all of them, which I think probably all of them have an S3 driver, so they're storing stuff in S3. They're just wrapping it in the front with the API. Otherwise, your client tool has to be able to translate 
and make assumptions about S3 and where you're putting things in S3 and then be able to, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's don't do S3 directly. I don't recommend it. What resources, docs, talks, books, et cetera, would you recommend for someone trying to get started with Container D? We talked a few minutes ago or a while ago about the KubeCon updates from the Container D team. So if you search on YouTube, KubeCon, Container D, you'll find years worth of intros and deep dives. I'd say all those are good because they give you in 30 minutes what it is. Yeah, I'll be in some of those, Akihiro, Derek, Michael Crosby, others. So, you know, that's pretty uh, pretty good starting point documentation-wise. We've actually been looking to have more people try and help us improve ContainerD's documentation. Our website is really light on docs, as you can see. And so- There you go, would... people. You want to get involved in open source? You just had an ask. So, yeah. yeah. exactly. Documentation so is super important. People. Yeah. So we would love people to get more involved in, in that aspect. Yeah. And I like video, but also remember that Container D, it's for most people, it's not necessary to know Container D because it's usually something else like Kubernetes in front of it that's, that's controlling it for you. You do, in some cases, maybe you need to know how to install it so that C Kubernetes can take a, a advantage of it. But that just depends on your distribution and you know how you're using Kubernetes. All right. Uh, next one. Does the host and container runtime combination matter somehow? Would it make any compatibility differences with environments like CentOS with Cryo versus Debian with container D? I don't know if this is asking about, I mean, I guess the word compatibility was in there. So this is a good time to say the great news today is like, we're using those OCI standards for runtime and image and distribution such that you can build an image with Docker build, you can run it on Cryo, you can run it on ContainerD, you can run it in a Kubernetes cluster that has some nodes. I don't know why you do this, but using Cryo is the CRI runtime and some using ContainerD. So mixing and matching distros and engines, thankfully is not, not a compatibility issue because of the OCI standards and so you can use Conoco or KO or BuildKit. You can build a hundred different ways um, and all the, the various engines will run that image. So yeah, I assume that's the question being asked, but I'm not. Yeah, he totally said, thanks. For, that person said, thanks very much for your answer. Yeah, and yeah, I agree with that. We're gonna do the last question from Marcos. Do you see serverless, firecracker, and containers going through parallel tracks in the short midterm? Maybe Marcus will have to tweet at me to make sure I understand the question. So f I don't know if listeners, Firecracker is a Rust-based virtual machine manager, lightweight VM. So people who've heard of CATA containers or uh, GVisor is not the same thing because it's actually a, a user space kernel. But anyone who's read or talked about sandboxes Linux kernel-based containers are one way to think about isolating a process. Lightweight virtualizers like Intel started this discussion years ago with clear containers. Then Kata came out of that, and now AWS uh, brought out Firecracker. And some of the Fargate infrastructure is built on Firecracker. AWS has been public that Lambda also uses Firecracker as uh, the isolator of choice. So Firecracker has both container tie-ins as well as pure kind of serverless. So 
that's where I'm not entirely sure. I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is there's crossover in those spaces. People are thinking and solving similar problems with lightweight virtualization, both for containers, but also just for kind of process-based serverless, ta- go run this task for me, go run this function. So yeah, I think Firecracker and Kata and others in that space have definitely some proponents, but we haven't really, it's another place that it seems like we're very early and how it all mm-hmm. plays out and how we end up integrating things like that into services like pure serverless functions offerings and container offerings. I think there's still a lot of maturing that will happen in that space. Yeah. I have not had a chance to use Firecracker myself, but I've been very interested in it and and how it plays out. Yeah. 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 All the ideas around running VMs and containers side by side and just K-8-ing everything. Yeah. K-8's the world. This has been a great conversation. I would We could talk for two more hours and this would be the epic long show <laughs> and we would go down tons of rabbit holes, but I'm not going to do that to you. And I want to say thank you so much. I'm excited that you're in AWS. Maybe we'll have something in the future once you've had some time there to talk about some of the stuff that AWS is doing in open source, because that's also a topic that I would love to to get out there is to just talk about some of the efforts AWS is having in the in that space. And the fact that you get to focus more on Container D is also exciting because I know that we that's all our topics have been about for five years now. <laughs> and maybe someday we're gonna have a show where we bring the whole crew back and we we have the we have Nermal and we have all the other captains that are hanging out do something like that would be a lot of fun to, to have be, Marcos yeah. and everybody in the same room. Thank you so much, Phil, for being on the show again. You can get him on Twitter and follow him for Tainer D updates and stuff from that team and all the other exciting stuff happening in the container world at AWS. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah. Great to see you. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>